0: Hello and welcome to the final lecture of our alumni studies weekend. It gives me great pleasure to welcome all of you here to this lecture and also to the people who are joining us via webcast um, online. Our final lecture is being delivered. Our final lecture is being delivered by Professor Bernard Lewis, Professor Emeritus of Near Eastern Studies. Um, he came to Princeton in nineteen seventy-four and taught here until his former retirement in nineteen eighty-six. Most recently, he is the author of a very positively reviewed book entitled What Went Wrong? Western Impact and Middle Eastern Response, and he's here to talk to us about Ottoman thought and practice concerning war. Please welcome Professor Bernard Lewis. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Is this thing working all right? You can hear me? Go ahead. I've learned by experience always to begin by asking that question. In one of the more recent pronouncements of Osama bin Laden, he remarked in passing that we, we meaning the Muslim world, have suffered shame and humiliation for more than 80 years. More than 80 years. That sent the Middle East experts scurrying to find out what he meant. The younger ones to scan the websites the older ones, to reference libraries, and they came up with all kinds of interesting and, for the most part, irrelevant answers. But I'm quite sure that for his target audience, Muslims primarily in the Middle East and, to a lesser extent, elsewhere, there wasn't the slightest doubt or hesitation in understanding what he meant. He was referring, of course, to the final defeat and destruction of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War. Let me remind you briefly of the facts. The Ottomans, doing something which has become almost standard in the Middle East, chose the wrong side in a major conflict and suffered the consequences with when they not only shared the defeat of their German and Austrian allies, but suffered a far worse humiliation. Their capital was occupied their sovereign placed under arrest and their territories partitioned between the victorious allies. This was the end of a long, long history. Uh, Not only that, but even the sultanate itself was abolished and shortly after the caliphate, which by then was linked with it, the formal headship of the Muslim world dating to the death of the Prophet Muhammad himself. And what made this humiliation even worse is that while the defeat of the Ottoman Empire was accomplished by the European Christian powers the abolition of the Caliphate was done by secularist Turks who successfully defeated the West on the battlefield in saving the Turkish Republic but enthusiastically accepted the West in their hearts, their institutions and their ways. The Ottoman Empire is the last the most enduring, and in many ways the most successful and most powerful of all the Islamic states since the death of the Prophet in the 7th century. It was engaged almost continuously in warfare, from the beginning to the end, and it is that warfare which forms the subject of my talk this morning. As I'm sure you already know, Islamic law recognizes four types of warfare as legitimate war against infidels war against apostates that is Muslims who have abandoned the faith war against rebels and war against bandits and the last of these is a legal trick to recognize the fact very much a fact though not in principle that there were also wars between Muslim states In principle, there is only one Muslim state, the one great Islamic community headed by the Supreme Sovereign of Islam, the Caliph. In fact, of course, for many centuries there had been plural, even rival Muslim states, sometimes at war with each other. To recognize this fact and give it legal status, the jurists came up with the idea of the war against bandits – if a group of bandits establish themselves and are solidly established it is permitted to to wage regular warfare against them regular warfare meaning that they have the status of the rebels have the status of belligerents uh, with all the uh, legal advantages accruing to that status they were not simply outlaws or bandits nor were they infidels now the wars of the Ottoman Empire were for the most part directed against those whom they called infidels and principally of course against the one great rival world religion and civilization Christendom it's very striking if you look at these things in the original sources, their sources, not western sources how clear this perception is looking at European history through a European Perspective. One reads about the Moors in Spain, the Tatars in Russia, the Turks in the Balkans. Three phases of the long struggle between Islam and Christendom for the control of Europe. In the writings of the Arabs, the Turks, the Tatars, and others, you will not find these terms. The words Moor and Saracen and Tatar and even Turk hardly ever occur. In their historiography, which is very rich and very sophisticated, The war is always between the Muslims and the unbelievers. Their side is the Muslim side. Their realm is the realm of Islam. Their ruler is the supreme lord of Islam, the Sultan Caliph. And the others, of course, are usually described as infidels, sometimes more specifically as Christians, and occasionally, when they need to distinguish between the different groups of infidels, they will use ethnic or regional titles but this is rare the normal perception is a religious conflict between religiously defined belligerence they did of course also wage a series of wars against Persia <clears throat> it's interesting if you look at the rather angry correspondence between the Sultan and the Shah That preceded and followed their numerous wars in the 16th century and after they are referred to as the Sultan of Rum which is the old name for what we nowadays call Turkey a name which by the way only came into use in Turkey in the 1920s used by Europeans from the 12th century onwards Um, in the correspondence between them, between the Sultan of Rum and the Shah of the Persians These titles are only used as terms of abuse by their opponents in addressing them. When the Shah wrote to the Sultan, he called him the Sultan of Rum. When the Sultan wrote to the Shah, he addressed him as the Shah of the Persians. In both cases, the intention was to belittle. Each was saying, in effect, I am the Supreme Lord of Islam. You are, at best, an established rebel. That kind of warfare, therefore, also existed. But the most important, and the one with which we shall be primarily concerned, was the war against the infidels. Now, uh, since these wars, these types of warfare, were legitimate, I'm using the word legitimate rather than just, which introduces, I think, another, and for this purpose, irrelevant category. According to the jurists, a war may be legitimate, that is to say one which it is lawful to pursue for whatever purpose, or not. If it is legitimate it is subject to the laws of war which are discussed at some length and in some detail in Muslim classical legal texts one of the perquisites of the, of the I'm sorry, one important point which I omitted only the first two war against infidels and war against apostates qualify as jihad the other two against bandits and rebels are legitimate but do not count as jihad. And there are therefore different rules for the conduct of warfare, the most important of which is the treatment of captives and prisoners. For infidels captured in a jihad, they are, when captured, booty. They are part of the booty and to be shared among the victors according to the very elaborate and detailed laws of war, providing, among other things, or the division of the booty, the share of the state, the leaders, and the various soldiers. That is to say, they themselves become booty, they are slaves. They and their families then become slaves, which the victorious jihad warriors may, if they fall to their share, keep for themselves or offer for sale in the markets. This gave rise to a rather interesting debate among the jurists, about the motivation of, hijab, of Jihad Jihad. the official purpose of Jihad is a war for the faith not a war to impose the faith on anybody and that's a common misunderstanding but a war to remove obstacles for people to choose it for themselves Christians are not required to embrace Islam but the assumption is that Christian governments will prevent them from doing so <laughs> following their natural instinct to embrace the truth And therefore, jihad is, as I said, ostensibly to remove obstacles to the adoption of the true faith by the infidels. This was seen as the main task of the state, and in principle it was to go on until the whole world accepted Islam or submitted to the rule of a Muslim state. Um, One of the, probably the earliest Ottoman reference to the discovery of the Americas gives a rather interesting description of the new world, obviously taken from Spanish and Italian sources, from prisoners, from captured documents or whatever, and the account ends with the normal formula, may they soon be illuminated by the light of Islam and added to the realms of the Sultan. This hasn't happened as yet, but... um, This gave rise, as I said before, to some discussion on the question of enslavement because it was pointed out more and more with more and more anguish on the part of jurists that jihad was used as an excuse for slave raids. Taking prisoners and enslaving them was legitimate but calling a slave raid a jihad in order to give it legitimacy was another matter. This last occurred particularly in Africa, where slave raids from the whole of the North African littoral into sub-Saharan Africa, or from the Near East into East Africa, became more and more frequent in order to maintain the essential supply of slaves. And by calling it a jihad, the enslavement of free people was rendered legitimate. For this purpose, they had to be heathens, or at least not Muslims. You cannot enslave Muslims, nor can you enslave dhimmis that is to say, protected non-Muslim subjects of the Muslim state. But heathens outside the frontiers of Islam, non-Muslims of any sort, were legitimate prey for enslavement, but only as part of a jihad followed for holy purposes. And there's a great deal of debate about the misuse of the notion and term jihad for the purpose of conducting slave raids it arose especially when increasing numbers of black Africans were already Muslim and therefore could not legitimately be enslaved this did not stop the slave raiders from raiding these Islamized tribes treating them as heathens and enslaving them in the same way as others much the same happened uh, in a different way on the European side the war against Europe we find slave raiders from the um, Eastern lands, raiding into Eastern Europe, particularly into Russia, the Ukraine and Poland and carrying off great numbers into the Caucasus where Georgians and Circassians were particularly appreciated Uh, the males for recruitment to the armed forces, the females for other purposes. Uh, The same thing happens with the Barbary Corsairs from North Africa who were engaged in what Europeans saw as piracy but for which I think another European term would be more appropriate privateering Uh, they were sailing under the Islamic equivalent of letters of Mark engaged in a maritime jihad and for this purpose they raided the shores of Christian Europe mainly the Mediterranean shores but in the early 17th century they extended their scope and raided Across the open sea, we have a number of raids which are commemorated, notably one in Penzance in southern England, one in Baltimore, I mean the one in Ireland, not the imitation, and one even as far away as Iceland, where they capture quite a number of uh, prisoners, captives, slaves, whatever you choose to call them, um, who were particularly appreciated in the slave markets. Uh, One of them was an Icelandic priest Olufur Egilson who was entrusted with the task of going back to Europe to arrange ransom and he left a very interesting account of his adventures and he notes I would say with a certain acerbity that his servant fetched $700 in the slave market and was promptly resold for $1000 uh, much more than he was likely to fetch <laughs> um, as I say one I think can detect a slightly peeved tone in his mention of this um, the war on the frontier was therefore the crucial preoccupation of the Ottomans both in theory and in practice the frontier being the frontier between Islam and Christendom we hear a great deal nowadays about the clash of civilizations a term which I think has been greatly misused um, But I think it is relevant to the encounter of Islam and Christendom. Most civilizations in human history are local. Greece, Rome, Babylon, Egypt, they're all local. China, India. Islam and Christendom are the only two which claim a world mission and offer a world religion. And Between these two, geographically adjacent, theologically akin, conflict was inevitable and it's been going on for more than 14 centuries with the same claims. This was exercised by a number of different Muslim rulers and in the final phase, final that is, so far, it fell to the Ottoman sultans who saw themselves as the successors of the great caliphs and sultans of the past with the supreme task of carrying on the jihad. The frontier is a very important element in Turkish thought about these matters and the frontiersman the frontier warrior is a specially honored figure <clears throat> excuse me one <clears throat> the frontier fighter is called the ghazi a term which recurs in later times as a kind of title of honor given to successful fighters against the unbelievers Let me turn now to the manner in which warfare was waged. We have, fortunately, very rich documentation on the theory and practice of Ottoman warfare. We have, on the one hand, the very detailed and quite remarkably explicit and detailed descriptions of them by their various enemies in Europe from Greece, from the Balkans, and above all, from Italy. We also have a massive documentation from the Ottoman side, not only literary texts, but literally millions of documents in the Ottoman archives. Um, We have, for example, the archives of the Corps of Janissaries and the archives of the various other military and naval formations in the Ottomans. Let me try to explain briefly the main types and the main changes that come in the Ottoman period Islamic warfare as you have no doubt already learnt goes through several different phases the Ottoman phase I think is distinctive in several respects two in particular Um, let me go back a step in earlier times warfare was mainly by cavalry And uh, there were two important innovations in the Middle East which gave them enormous advantages. One was the use of the desert. The first Arab conquerors used the desert in much the same way that the British Empire used the sea. It was there that they could move freely. They could come and go. They could escape if necessary and reinforce when necessary and resupply when necessary. And as they used to say in Moscow, it is no accident, friends, that uh, the first centers of the Arab Islamic Empire are places on the edge of the desert, uh, places like Kairawan in Tunisia, Fustat in Egypt, Basra in Iraq, Qom in Iran, and so on. These are the Maltas and Gibraltar's and Calcuttas of the uh, and Singapores of the Islamic Empire. Then came a second important innovation, the stirrup we first hear of this being used by Persians. Whether they invented it or got it from further east, I don't know. My knowledge stops in Central Asia. Um, but certainly the stirrup was a major innovation in Middle Eastern warfare. The armored horsemen with stirrups became the medieval equivalent of a battle tank. Um, without stirrups, you can't do very much by way of a cavalry charge. <laughs> You're just likely to fall off. The stirrup changed everything. With the Turks, we get two other major information, uh, innovations, one of which is a new type of infantry, the Janissaries, long-term professional infantrymen. In the past, armies generally consisted of temporary levies, volunteers and levies for a campaign with a very small number of professionals. Um, increasingly, those professionals tended to be slaves. The slave soldier was not unknown in Greco-Roman antiquity. Uh, he becomes much more common in Islam, in the Islamic Middle Ages. The Ottomans, you get, I would say, for the first time, really well-organized, well-drilled, full-time professional infantry. The Janissaries. Uh, the word comes from the Turkish yeniceri, which means new soldiers it was a new corps of soldiers a new idea so to speak and they were raised by a compulsory levy of children from the Christian populations of the Balkans um, there's been some argument and there was even then some argument about the legality of this according to Islamic law once Christians or Jews have submitted to Muslim rule they are entitled to the free practice of their religion and the compulsory of Christian boys was seen by some as a violation of Islamic law the justification given was that the privilege of the dhimma that's to say protected status for the non-Muslim in the Muslim state was limited to those who were already Christians or Jews at the time of the advent of Islam the Balkan peoples were heathens they chose Christianity when Islam was already available to them and therefore were not entitled to these privileges. This is, as I say, rather a legal quibble, a, a, an argument of the jurists, and obviously even they themselves didn't take it too seriously since the vast majority of the Balkan Christians had the same rights and status as other Christians in the older communities. The Janissary Corps became extremely important, and one of the main reasons for the importance of the Janissary Corps was the use of firearms. This was, of course, the major innovation of the time. And it was the first innovation that came unequivocally from Europe, from the enemy. Um, There was some resistance to the introduction of firearms in the Islamic world. This weapon was seen as very alien. They disliked it. And from Mamluk Egypt, for example, we have the complaint that it is unchivalrous. I don't think one could disagree with that and uh, I recall one 15th century early 16th century Egyptian writer who says with obvious disgust and indignation by means of this weapon one woman can fight a whole squadron of infantry or cavalry (laughs) he had a point Uh, (laughs) Um, the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt was slow and reluctant in accepting firearms and when they finally did accept firearms to a very limited extent those who wielded them were of the lowest social levels they were the lower levels of slaves with no status and no honour in Iran they were a little more willing but only a little more thanks largely to two brothers called Shirley adventurers from England, where else who instructed them in the use of firearms and um, the people who really took it up in a big way were the Ottoman Turks the capture of Constantinople in 1453 to be precise on Tuesday the 29th of May 1453 so the anniversary is not far off the capture of Constantinople was effected to no small extent by the skillful use of artillery against the old walls this walled city which for more than a thousand years had resisted so many attacks could not stand up to massed artillery they had more trouble with the use of field guns Uh, for siege artillery they were excellent but field guns raised the question of transport Um, the transport of the Ottoman armies depended very largely on camels this makes good sense the camel is a very hardy creature in terms of weight load and distance without, uh, so to speak, refueling, it was far better than any other available. And they had therefore relied very heavily on camel for transport, uh, supplies, equipment, rim, um, ammunition, and the like. But when they advanced from Anatolia into Europe, and they began to suffer problems. The camel was a creature of a dry, hot climate, in the wet and sometimes cold climate of the Balkans, the camels did not fare well. And from the records, we hear of complaints of hundreds and sometimes even thousands of camels dying, and of new raids being necessary all over the Asian provinces of the Empire to buy or requisition new supplies of camel rays, so to speak, uh, for the Ottoman forces in Europe. Eventually, they did make some adaptation, but and used other animals particularly water buffalo uh, and of course mules and donkeys and horses that was an interesting problem interesting in that it shows some of the difficulties of adaptation now another element in the army was the sipahi uh, from which the words sepoy and spahi become the Anglo-Indian sepoy and the French North African Spahi. Both come from the Persian word Sipahi, which means simply army man. These were what people usually call the feudal cavalry. Though feudal is not really an appropriate word. It's a very loose analogy because the arrangements were in many ways significantly different from those systems in Western Europe which we call feudal. The Sipahi was, again, a professional soldier, but instead of receiving pay like the janissary he was rewarded with what for want of a better term I will call a fief these came in various shapes and sizes his fief was placed at his disposal usually he collected the revenues through an agent and the revenues of his fief provided him with his pay and he was he could reside on his fief when not required but had to answer the call of mobilization when he was needed for battle. Here again we have immensely rich documentation long lists of fiefs all over the empire and uh, usually with some statement about the person and also some indication of the revenues of the fief and from what sources they came. Priceless information for economic and social as well as for military history This kind of let me call it quasi-feudal Cavalry became less and less important and less and less valuable (coughs) in the age of artillery and mobile and and, um, other firearms. At a certain stage, (coughs) the Ottomans began to realize that they were falling behind the Europeans. They were aware, for example, that firearms were a European invention and they imported gunners and gunfounders from Europe from a a strikingly early date we have evidence of, how shall I put it Uh, yes, I have exactly the right phrase of what in Europe nowadays is known as constructive engagement Uh, let me explain what I mean as early as the Crusades after Saladin had recaptured the port cities from the Crusaders he allowed European merchants to stay there. And in a letter to the Caliph in Baghdad, he explained why he was doing so. They bring us, he says, weapons and munitions from Europe, the best that Europe has to offer to their disadvantage and to our advantage. And Therefore, I permit them to stay. This tradition of constructive engagement continued through the Crusades and in the, into the Ottoman period. In the 16th and 17th centuries, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, when the Ottomans were advancing into Europe, there was no lack of European supplies, guns, gunpowder, and other weapons of war. Um, we have some evidence of this from the Turkish sources, and perhaps the best is the long series of papal decrees denouncing this trade and forbidding it under all sorts of penalties, but obviously unsuccessfully, since the decrees continue and the trade is undiminished Uh, there was even uh, an English gun shop in Istanbul um, which we know from various sources and uh, other suppliers particularly from Western Europe from France, from Italy who had an obvious interest in strengthening the enemy of their enemy namely the Holy Roman Empire there were also people who chose to serve in the Ottoman armies as what the Europeans called renegades and the Turks called muhtedi, those who have chosen the true path. In other words, converts from Christianity to Islam, uh, quite apart from the compulsory converts of the Janissaries from the local populations, there was no lack of adventurers, I think that's a fair, neutral word, from Western Europe who made their fame and fortune among the Ottomans by teaching them the various European weapons of war. Um, After a while we also find what I suppose nowadays we would call expert advisors um, loaned to the Turks by various European governments who are interested in strengthening the Turks against their European rivals. This becomes much more important in the period from the late 17th century onwards when for the first time the Turks become aware that things are going badly we do see occasional signs of awareness in the records of the 17th century and certainly of the need to adapt or borrow western military techniques and devices but it's all rather low-key and small-scale The lessons of history are most perspicuously taught in the battlefield. The second Turkish siege of Vienna, 1683, was a catastrophe for the Turks. The first Turkish siege of Vienna was ended with what in sporting language you might call a draw, or in chess language a stalemate. An inconclusive warfare continued for almost a century and a half, The Second Turkish Siege in 1683 was described by a contemporary Turkish historian, Uh, I quote his words in English translation, the most calamitous defeat that we have suffered since the foundation of the Ottoman state. I think one must admire the candor of the 17th century Turkish historian. Uh, Modern Middle Eastern historians seem to be quite incapable of anything of the kind the awareness of defeat was strengthened with the peace that ended the war the Treaty of Karlovitz of 1699 the very first time that the Ottoman Empire was compelled to sign a defeat dictated by victorious Christian enemies and the debate begins immediately after the beginning of the 18th century on this agonizing question, what did we do wrong Uh, one interesting recurring question is why is it that in the past we were always able to catch up with the new devices invented by the infidels, and now we are no longer able to keep pace. It wasn't until much later that it occurred to them to ask, why is it always the infidels who come up with new devices? Um, The debate becomes more agonized, and from this point onwards, there are quite deliberate and conscious efforts to modernize, which practically meant to westernize their armed forces in the course of the 18th century there are a number of shall we say desultory attempts with western advisors Um, if you're interested there's a very good account by one of them uh, the Baron de Tott T-O-T-T a professional soldier of Franco-Hungarian background who spent some years in the Ottoman Empire and wrote an account of his uh, travels there and of what he saw and of what he did Fortunately, he wrote in French, not in Hungarian. Um, By the end of the 18th century, the the lesson was quite clear and unequivocal. It came in its most dramatic form at the end of the 18th century. 1798, (coughs) a French naval squadron, commanded by a young general in the service of the Republic called Napoleon Bonaparte, a French expeditionary force, I beg your pardon a French military expeditionary force commanded by General Napoleon Bonaparte landed in Egypt, one of the central lands of the Islamic Empire and was able without the slightest difficulty to conquer it, occupy it and rule it there was nothing they could do to stop him a devastating lesson in the new realities the second lesson, even more devastating came just a few years later with the removal of the French from Egypt. And this was accomplished not by the Egyptians, nor by their suzerains, the Turks, but by a small squadron of the Royal Navy commanded by a young admiral called Horatio Nilsson. The lesson was clear, that a European power could come at will and that only another European power could get them out. And that was the dominating feature of Middle Eastern military and therefore political history for the 19th and most of the 20th century. Uh, In our own time, the era that was inaugurated by Bonaparte and Nelson was terminated by Bush and Gorbachev. Or should I say by Gorbachev and Bush? Let me come back to the changes. People usually begin with what is most immediately visible. So they began with wearing European-style uniforms. The traditional garb of the Ottoman soldier was much more convenient, much more comfortable, and much more suitable than European-style uniforms. But belted tunics and trousers were the garb of victory, and so they decided to adopt them. If you will visit the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, you will see two portraits side by side of the reforming Sultan Mahmoud II, He is mounted on a horse. The horse is prancing, and behind him is an aide. And in the first one, he is wearing traditional dress, and so, by the way, is the horse, and so is the aide. In the other one, he is wearing a belted tunic with a small shoulder cape and trousers. And the horse also has Western-style accoutrements, and is prancing at precisely the same angle. Uh, Clearly, the picture was remade, uh, moderni- in a modernized version by the same artist. It was a delightful piece of visual evidence of change. Um, he went very far in trying to modernize and he and some of his successors especially went to what seemed to be the best experts of the time. To modernize the army, they applied to the Prussians. Prussian missions came to examine the Ottoman army army, see what was wrong with it and how to change it and if you're interested the later field marshal von Moltke who was there wrote a very interesting account of his travels in Turkey and his adventures there as a military advisor for the navy they turned naturally to England and among other naval advisors was one Adolphus Slade a fascinating figure who served as a midshipman at the Battle of Navarino and then spent the greater part of his career first as liaison officer between the admiral commanding the Mediterranean squadron and the embassy in Istanbul and then as an advisor to the Ottoman navy with the title Mushavir Pasha, Advisor Pasha. Um, What else? Oh, yes. Uh, Mahmoud also decided that he had to have a band in order to have a Western modernized army so he applied to the Sardinian embassy in Istanbul and said he needed a bandmaster to come and form a band and a bandmaster duly arrived his name was Donizetti uh, a brother of the famous composer and we, we unfortunately we don't know a great deal about him but we do get occasional glimpses um, his presence is first reported by Slade in one of his many books about Turkey um, he had formed and I suppose trained is the right word a brass band of young cadets from the Ottoman forces and if Slade is to be believed and I see no reason why not he did a very creditable job they were even performing overtures from Rossini and other unfamiliar types of music we hear of um, Donizetti Pasha as he later became he was naturally given a commission in the armed forces as a bandmaster he had to have that and eventually became a brigadier and a pasha. And the last time we hear of him was towards the end of the century, uh, when he was apparently conducting an orchestra of harem ladies, escorted, of course, by eunuchs, uh, for the entertainment of the sultan. The end of the empire, as you know, was the ultimate defeat <clears throat> and gave rise to a good many uh, how shall I put it uh, certainly unpredicted and for the most part undesirable consequences in the region it's interesting that um, in 1915 when the war was still <clears throat> going on uh, the British government appointed an interdepartment committee known by the name of its Chairman Bunsen, the Bunsen Committee produced a report in 1915, secret of course, advising the government that all kinds of damaging consequences would result from the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. And it, was therefore, it would therefore be wise, after having first, of course, defeated them, as was necessary in the war, to retain the Ottoman Empire in existence. As you know, of course, this report was not accepted. It was shelved and we are still living with the consequences thank you oh, one other thing I would like to quote sorry um, the Maréchal de Sax one of the greatest soldiers of his time spent a little while exploring the Balkan battlefronts between the Austro the, the Austrian or Holy Roman armed forces on the one side and the Ottoman forces on the other and he has some extremely interesting observations from a trained professional soldier on what was wrong and uh, he talks about the difficulty which the Ottomans like everybody else have in accepting new ideas and accepting new practices and he finally says that what is wrong with the Turks? Why is it that whereas previously they won every battle now they lose every battle and he says what they lack is not weapons, not numbers, not courage, not resources, not money What they they lack, he said, and I will give it to you in the original French, is l'ordre, la discipline, et la manière de combattre. Order, discipline, manière de combattre, I think I can only translate into modern American as know-how. Thank you. We have some time for questions. Will you, or should I? Uh, my question is more in the nature of an historical footnote. But in the midst of the impending collapse of the Ottoman regime, they apparently put up a very spirited defense at Gallipoli. Gallipoli, yes, and I just—they—they they, they must have been doing something right there. <laughs> I'm just curious how that happened. The, why the British didn't get through quickly? Well, if you look at Gallipoli, you'll see this is an extremely difficult military operation. But in World War II, remember that uh, the Ottoman Empire was an ally of the central powers. There were very large and very efficient German and Austrian missions helping the Turks. Um, Again, if you would like to look at a contemporary account of it, um, (coughs) General Lehmann von Sanders uh, was there, and he wrote a fascinating book, quote, five years in Turkey. Um, yes, the, 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 the Germans, and to a lesser extent the Austrians, did a great deal to modernize and re-equip the Ottoman forces during their last great war, but it wasn't enough. I did not get clearly, perhaps you've already said, but Uh, To what degree were the Ottomans already Islamic or not before they came into power? The term Ottoman is a dynastic term. The Turks came into Anatolia in the 11th century and formed a series of small principalities, one of which became dominant then of the Seljuks, and this was at a later date replaced by the Ottomans. So this was simply a dynastic change no more. The conversion of the Turks to Islam occurred earlier in Central Asia. The Turks had originally come from Central Asia and points beyond. They migrated into the Middle East, sometimes as slaves. They were highly valued as military slaves and then as conquerors. And by the time of the rise of the Ottoman state, virtually all the Muslim states in the Middle East were ruled By rulers of Turkish extraction, Turkish dynasties, and with primarily Turkish military support. Um, But the Islamization is long before the Ottomans. Uh, Could you comment on the uh, caliphate and its? uh uh, original site uh, in uh, in Baghdad uh, to the uh, uh, well uh, in in Medina uh, uh, to Baghdad to uh, Istanbul and to its termination by Ataturk and the, its effect on where we are today well that's a large subject but I'll do my best <laughs> um <clears throat> the word is arabic it's the arabic word khalifa which by a fortunate ambiguity, let me change that, by a convenient ambiguity, combines the meaning of deputy and successor. It can mean the one or the other, depending on the context. When the Prophet died, his community agreed on one of his most immediate disciples and converts, Abu Bakr, to succeed him. And he did so with the title... Khalifa Rasul Allah the deputy or successor since the prophet was dead obviously successor was the meaning intended the successor of the prophet of God and he inherited all the functions of the prophet other than the spiritual he was a religious, political, military li- head of what by then was already a significant political community um, his, when he died he was replaced by consent by Omar um, The story is told, probably not authentic but it's interesting as revealing the problems that were being considered that when Omar succeeded to the rulership someone addressed him as Khalifatullah not successor obviously but deputy of God to which Omar is said to have replied no, 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 there is no such thing and then they said well Khalifa Rasulullah, deputy of the prophet of God and he said well that was Abu Bakr and then they said well uh, Khalifat Khalifat Rasulullah the deputy of the deputy of the prophet of God and he said this will get longer and longer and finally they said well what shall we call you and he said well you are the faithful and I am your commander therefore call me commander of the faithful Amir al-Mu'minin commander of the believers or of the faithful which was the title used by the caliph right through to the end now the first four caliphs were non-hereditary Of the first four, three were murdered, which is not a very auspicious beginning for a new political order. And what happened was that dynasticism, although not formally approved by Islam, nevertheless took over. And uh, the fifth caliph, Mu'awiyah, was of the same family as the murdered fourth caliph, and he established the first of a series of dynasties that exercised the office of caliph, headship of the Muslim world. Now, the first seat of the caliphate was Medina. The second seat of the caliphate was Syria. I say Syria rather than Damascus because it moved around somewhat. The third was Baghdad, when the Abbasids, the the house of Abbas, took over from the house of Umayyad. After that, there were some disputes. You have rival caliphates in Spain, the caliphate of Cordoba, and later, more dangerous, in Egypt, the Fatimid Caliphate but by the 13th century there was only one Caliphate and that was the Caliphate of Baghdad and that was the one that was overthrown and destroyed by the Mongol invasions um, there was for a while a, a sort of hiatus and then uh, again the story is that a member of the Abbasid House escaped from Baghdad and went to Egypt where he was given the title Caliph by the Sultan of Egypt Sultan being a military political ruler not a religious one so for some centuries you had in Egypt the caliphate and the sultanate existing side by side with the sultan as the effective political and military ruler and the caliph is really a sort of uh, token figurehead ruler on the religious side after the conquest of Egypt in 1517 conquest by the Ottomans things begin to change now The story is that the caliphate was transferred to Selim, the Ottoman sultan who conquered Egypt. That looks like a post-facto justification. What is a more likely explanation is that the title caliph had become devalued by this time and a number of different Muslim rulers were calling themselves caliph. The most important and the most successful of these was the Ottoman sultan. And in time, his claim to be the caliph was generally accepted in the Islamic world, particularly in the era when European imperial powers were establishing themselves in more and more of the Muslim world. Remember, the Russians were spreading (coughs) eastwards, having driven out the Tatars, they followed the Tatars whence they had come and conquered the Tatar lands of then Central Asia and beyond. By the people from the Iberian Peninsula, the Spaniards and the Portuguese, particularly the Portuguese, who, having driven out the Moors, followed them whence they had come and eventually established an empire in south Southeast Asia. Um, In that era of European expansion, the Ottoman Empire rapidly began to appear as the only real champion of Islam against expanding Christendom, and the only one that was really mounting an effective and for a long time successful counterattack in the heart of Europe, which is where it really mattered. So the Ottoman Caliphate came to be more and more generally recognized by everyone except the Shia but they didn't recognize the Abbasid Caliphate either Um, and uh, Sultan and Caliph were both titles of the Ottoman ruler and this remained so until the end of the empire and shortly after when first the Sultanate and then the Caliphate were abolished by the Turkish Republic That meant that for the first time since the death of the Prophet, there was no caliph and no claimant. There were a number of attempts to establish a caliphate elsewhere, but none of them succeeded in mustering any support in the Muslim world. So there, for the first time, there was, so to speak, a hiatus. There wasn't even a token head of the Islamic community as a whole to represent it towards the outside world. That is what Osama bin Laden was talking about. And there were a few desultory attempts to reconstitute a caliphate. None of them came to anything. None of them mustered the necessary support. And this is obviously one of the items that al-Qaeda has in mind, restoring the caliphate, the universal headship of Islam, and resuming the task that was interrupted at the siege of Vienna. Professor Lewis, following up on that... Sorry, I can't hear you very well. Following up on that, if the Turks, if the Ottomans were considered to be sort of the spokesman to the rest of the world of Islam, who do you think that the Turks now under Ataturk are going to take their place or are, or is somebody more fundamental going to be the spokesman? Who is going to be the spokesman for Islam under current conditions? There is no one person or country or institution that can claim to be the spokesman for Islam. There have been a number of claimants, but none of them were universally recognized. The Turkish Republic quite explicitly renounces any such claim. The Turkish Republic was the first Muslim state to incorporate the separation of religion and government in its constitution. Uh, Ataturk, the founder of the Republic saw this as a necessary condition of modernization and democratization. And that has remained a firm principle of the Turkish Republic ever since. Um, At one time, they even prohibited religious instruction in the schools. They have relented on that. But Turkey still remains officially a secular state. It does participate in inter-Muslim, intra-Muslim gatherings, but always with two conditions, that nothing shall commit it to renounce, uh, to anything contrary to the Turkish constitution, it's clear what they have in mind, or contrary to the basic principles of Turkish foreign policy. Again, it's clear what they have in mind. So Turkey is definitely not a candidate for the role of leadership of Islam, though some people see them as candidates for, uh, not for leadership, but rather as serving as a model of a better way of doing things, which an example which others might choose to follow and some do uh, if you look among the writings of the fundamentalists it's the exact opposite Ataturk is seen as the terrible example the ultimate betrayer of Islam who, uh, who destroyed the caliphate and deposed the last caliph and disestablished Islam as the religion of the state, he is seen as I said by the fundamentalists in their writings as the ultimate evildoer and therefore, as many of them say, he must have been Jewish. That is actually stated as a fact in many of the writings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so may I just continue this? Um, so far, nobody else has been able to present a convincing claim to the leadership of Islam. The House of Saud tried for a while. Um, particularly the most famous, Ibn Saud, the founder of the, uh, 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 of the kingdom... But it didn't catch on. Uh, In Iran, which is Shiite, they do present themselves through the Islamic Revolution and the Islamic Republic which it created as offering a new leadership to world Islam. And for a while it began to have some success, some response. I remember, for example, some years ago I was visiting Indonesia and I was asked, to my utter astonishment, by the Ministry of Religious Guidance to lecture in universities on the study of Islam in the West and I visited a number of these religious universities and I was taken to see the dormitories and many of them had pictures of Khomeini hanging on the wall uh, showing what, where their loyalties or at least their inclinations lay but that has changed the Islamic Republic of Iran looks much less attractive now than it did in the head, head early days when um, it really did seem to be the beginning of a new era. What they have done in um, Iran is something which has never happened before in the history of Islam. They have, let me put it this way, undertaken the Christianization of Islamic institutions. I use the word purely in an administrative and functional sense, not in any religious or moral sense. But they have created a pontificate, a college of cardinals, a bench of bishops, and above all, an Inquisition—all uh, of which are alien to Islam. So one may hope, inshallah, in the not too distant future, they will also have a reformation. <laughs> um, my question is that when you had concluded your you had concluded your lecture by talking about what 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 went wrong and. Uh, quoted an observer from the outside, but for the people who still reside in what was the Ottoman Empire, how do they respond to that question, which is to say, how do they explain what went wrong and what is sort of the prevailing view in the culture of today? Uh, well, that's a fascinating question and uh, one to which I just recently devoted a book. Um, when you become aware that something has gone wrong, there are two ways you can proceed. You can say, what did we do wrong? And then the next question is, how do we put it right? And that is the way of the Turks in general and the reformers in other Muslim countries. Or you can say, who did this to us? And that leads into a twilight world of conspiracy theories and neurotic fantasies. And that, of course, is the way in which many other Muslim countries at the present time are trying to answer the question. The answers to the second question obviously proven you you have uh, the standard list of malefactors, starting with the Mongols, the imperialists, and so forth. The more interesting answers are the ones given by those who ask, what did we do wrong? And there are many, many different answers. The earliest discussions, of course, were rather simplistic. Military. We need better guns, better weapons, better military training, and so on. But by the mid to late 19th century, they advanced far beyond that. One explanation that was found was the economic one. The Europeans had industry. They had things called factories, where they were able to produce goods cheaper and more, uh, at lower cost and with greater speed and efficiency. So they established factories by government decree. And unsurprisingly, it didn't work too well. <laughs> then there were some visitors to the West you begin to get visitors to the West from the late 18th century mostly diplomats nobody else went except occasional prisoners of war and then the early 19th century for the first time you get students going and they notice another very peculiar thing about the West it's called freedom freedom traditionally is a legal term if you are free, if you are not a slave but they, unlike the West did not use slavery and freedom as a metaphor for good government and bad government um, the ideal of good government is defined as justice, not as freedom. This notion of freedom was new. And then some of them wrote accounts of these odd institutions like parliaments and elected assemblies and uh, written constitutions and the like. And the earliest detailed description <coughs> of a Western legislature known to me is by a person from India called Mirza Talib Khan, who visited England at the end of the 18th century England, France and among other things was taken to see the House of Commons and he was given a tour of the House of Commons by his English hosts and he tries to explain this to his readers and he says his description is not very complimentary he says you know in our country you often see trees on opposite sides of the road the branches loaded with parrots squawking at each other. He said, the House of Commons rather reminded him of this. (laughs) But then he goes on to explain what it's for. And he says, you know, the, the English, not having accepted a divine law, as we Muslims have, are reduced to the expedient of making their own laws. And therefore, this purpose of this body is to legislate a very alien notion. If you believe that law is divine, eternal, and unchanging then they went they, tried, they experimented with legislative assemblies and elections and so on and that again ended in miserable failure uh, the dictators the, 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 the democracies which were set up by indigenous reformers or bequeathed by departing imperialists either collapsed totally or were turned into totalitarian dictatorships uh, the British mandate in Iraq the French mandate in Syria both left elected assemblies and electoral systems and written constitutions. But what they have now in both these countries is the only European model that has really worked successfully, the one-party totalitarian state. So people began to look for deeper courses. Now, one which to a Western observer will be obvious is religion. Uh, This is a very delicate subject. They couldn't say Islam is the cause, and it wouldn't even have been terribly plausible since they had done very well with Islam in an earlier period. So they hit on the word fanaticism, and there's a great deal of denunciation of fanaticism. That's to say, it's not Islam that is at fault, but what people have done with Islam, corrupt and deviant versions of Islam, and more particularly the emergence of a clergy alien to Islam and the involvement of the clergy in the affairs of state. A good deal of discussion deals with the role of fanaticism and the Turkish constitution, the first constitution of the republic, is an attempt to apply that principle, separation of religion and the state, and they went further in Turkey. They virtually abolished the Sharia um, in toto. The, the laws of the Turkish state are all secular laws mostly adapted or copied from various European systems Um, others try to play games with the Sharia by limiting it to certain areas, mainly what's called the law of personal status marriage, divorce and inheritance and having secular laws and other things, but none of that has worked terribly well others again have seen the explanation as due to less to their failings as to the success of others. It was not a falling behind of the Islamic world, but an advance of Christendom, which is really not answering the question, but restating it. Um, In 1867, (coughs) a new theory appeared. Good moment for a pause to keep you on tenterhooks. Uh, <clears throat> I say 1867, because that's the earliest I have been able to discover. There's an article in a Turkish newspaper <clears throat> written by a well-known writer of the time, Lord Namak Kemal. Uh, <clears throat> he says, The reason for our backwardness, it was permitted to use such words as that in 1867... The reason for our backwardness compared with the West, he says, is the way we treat our women. At best, he said, we treat them like jewels or musical instruments. A rather striking metaphor, which I think will grow on you as you think about it. Um, By treating women as we do, we deprive ourselves of the talents and services of half the population. And not only that, but we, ins- we cripple the education even of the male half. And the result, and he uses another striking metaphor, he says, compared with the West, our body social is like a human body that is paralyzed on one side. Um, there wasn't a great deal of follow-up to this line of argument. There was an Egyptian called Qasem Amin, who had been in Paris and came back with an apparently rather vigorous French girlfriend, and, um, he produced the first feminist literature in Arabic. Since then, the movement has won, won some support, but on the whole, not very much. And, of course, a reaction against it has been very, very strong. It was one of the main, oops, one of the main themes stressed by Khomeini in his revolutionary propaganda before, during, and after the Iranian Revolution of 79. It's also a main theme of the Taliban and other groups. They see the emancipation of women as the worst kind of Western corruption. Um, Remember what the United States, in the language of the Islamic Republic of Iran, was called the great Satan. Now, you have to appreciate what that means. Satan is not a conqueror. He's not an imperialist. He's not an exploiter. He's a seducer, and it is the temptation, the seduction of American culture, particularly of American popular culture, that he and others like him saw as the main danger from the West, and um, that emerges very clearly in their literature, and feminism is the worst part of that. We have time for one more question. Uh, Going once. Despite the uh, general um, anti-feminism within Islam, uh, several very large states, notably uh, uh, Indonesia today and uh, um, Pakistan and Turkey in the past, have had uh, feminine heads of state. Would you comment on that conflict? Yes, uh, I find this very puzzling and uh, not without parallels elsewhere. I mean, who would ever have thought that the first woman Prime Minister of England would come from the right wing of the Conservative Party? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I refer, of course, to Mrs. Thatcher. Um, there, There is some sort of paradox that seems to work there, that in a society which is, generally speaking, not disposed to women's rights, there is an opportunity for an individual woman. But remember that in most of these cases, not in Turkey, but the cases in Pakistan, Bangladesh, elsewhere, they came in as widows or daughters, not in their own right. It was the hereditary principle, even in republics. um Cilere in Turkey was there in her own right. She made it in the Turkish political system. But then Turkey, as I said, is a secular republic. Um, the, the various ladies in Pakistan, and you can add India, Bangladesh, elsewhere, Uh, they succeeded as widows or daughters. Um, In the Turkish case, no, that's different. Professor Lewis, we're truly honored that you spent time with us today, taking time out of your busy schedule, and thank you very much. Thank you.